This evening, as Mike uh, prayed, and as you see in your bulletin, we are beginning a new sermon series in the book of Esther. And so you can go ahead and turn there. It's, we've been reading in Ezra, so Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther, if you're, if you're looking for and needing help in finding where that small um, and maybe obscure uh, Old Testament book is. But um, I look forward to this. I'm excited to begin this series and kick it off. Um, we'll be covering this through the summer and maybe some into the, the fall, and we'll continue the pattern that we uh, established with the book of Galatians, where your pastors take turns with, um, uh, with the, the next set of verses as we go through this book. As we study this book, you'll see the major players of Ahasuerus, of Esther, of Mordecai, of Haman, and they act in ways that sometimes make us shudder, sometimes make us laugh. Um, but however, while we see the major earthly players, we must recognize that God is the major player. He is the chief actor in this whole story. God is accomplishing his will and preserving and protecting his people in a very unfriendly setting. The name of the series is For Such a Time as This, highlighting the fact of God's sovereignty and how he used Esther, and, and picking up on that phrase from chapter 4, how he used Esther at a critical time in the history of God's people to preserve them. And so we are looking forward to this, and I ask that you open to Esther 1. I'm going to pray, and then we'll read chapter 1. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and merciful God, we bow before you and thank you for your word. Lord, it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray, Lord, that your word would do its work among your people tonight. Help us to hear it, Lord, and help us to, to understand it. Give us hearts that are eager to receive it. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here tonight be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, 
Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all that were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shether, Ad- Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukan said to, in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media will have heard of the queen's behavior, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. And if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may never be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. Have you ever wondered where God is? Have you ever had days so dark that you wonder maybe even whether or not God existed? Or if he does, why does he not hear? I remember in 2011, um, my sister who lives um, in, in southeast Kansas, not too far from Joplin, Missouri, and if you remember uh, a, a terrible weather event, an EF5 tornado that ripped through Joplin, Missouri, destroying many homes and taking many lives. And uh, my sister told me that she went to try to help, and there was such devastation, and she she went to a place where the, the shattered remains of a home was, and the homeowner was just asking why. And she said that she didn't have an answer, but she just sat with that individual and let them ask that of her, even though she didn't have an answer for them. The Bible doesn't dodge questions of why. Sometimes we see how God is at work, and sometimes we are just called to wait and to trust him and to to learn more of his ways, even when we're not given a full explanation, as in the case of Job. One commentator has said, our faith 
is not shaken simply by asking hard questions. Rather, our faith is shaken when we ask them, laboring under the mistaken impression that somehow the Word of God does not anticipate questions like that. Or that it does not itself ask such questions or that, cannot, that it cannot speak to them with real world honesty, end of quote. The book of Esther is one such place where troubled times are addressed, where the people of God are genuinely and severely threatened for their very lives, for their very existence. And the book of Esther pulls back the curtains and, and helps us to see what the players in that action, in this drama that unfolds in the book of Esther, it pulls back the curtains and it shows us God's sovereignty. It shows us how God is working, how God is accomplishing his divine will. God is there and he is not deaf to the cries of his people. The first chapter, as we have read this evening, is, is really a setup of the events that are to come, as you might imagine. It shows us a bit about the empire of that day. You'll hear that word a lot this evening because I want to capitalize upon it, the empire. Um, in fact, I'm building my outline around it. We have, first of all, the empire of the world. We have rebellion in the empire. We have the empire strikes back. And then finally, the only true and lasting empire. Firstly, the empire of the world. My subpoints, I, I confess, are borrowed from a commentator, Christopher Ashe, as he thinks about this concept of the empire of the world. And, and I think it's helpful. He says that it is inescapable, it is invincible, it is impressive, it is desirable, and it is dangerous. Does that sound like another secular society that you know? Maybe the one that we live in today? I think it's helpful to consider this ancient kingdom in those terms because it helps us appreciate what the people of God were facing in that time. And it also helps us today in 2022, helps us to think about the empire of the world in which we live. First of all, the empire is inescapable. Well, if there's one thing that the author wants us to see in the opening verses is that this king, Ahasuerus, is powerful. His kingdom is extensive, it is impressive, and it basically covers all of the known world of that day. It extended from India to Ethiopia, scripture says. It covered 127 provinces. If you were to take that ancient kingdom and superimpose it upon a, upon a global map today, it would cover more or less Northwestern India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, Northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Northern Sudan. I don't even know if I even said all those countries correctly. Imagine that, okay? That was basically the known world at that time. And if you didn't like things in Persia in 483 B.C., it was too bad. There was really nowhere, nowhere else to go. There, there may have been other people groups living in isolation in other far-off places in the world, but this was the known world. This was 127 provinces, which was basically all of the known world at that time. It was inescapable, the empire of the world. Secondly, the empire of the world is invincible. This king, Ahasuerus, we, we see he was a Persian king. We've, we've been reading through Ezra, and, and we've seen actions of Cyrus, who, who uh, some 
there, there's, there's a little dispute as to exactly the succession of Persian kings, but, but, but commentators think that Cyrus was, was this man's grandfather and Darius was his father. And um, so he, they were powerful people. Um, Cyrus was the first king of Medo-Persia um, and the one who initially allowed the Jews to go back to their homeland. If, if you read the NIV, you'll see that the NIV uses the Persian name of Ahasuerus, which is Xerxes. And, um, but the setting here of Esther um, historically is after the exile when some of the Jewish people have been returned to their homeland um, and the temple has been rebuilt and some degree at least of biblical worship has been established in Jerusalem. Um, but that's not where Esther is. That's not where these events take place. They are in a land far, far away. Far away is where Esther is from the people that have been returned to the, the Holy Land, to, to Judea, to Jerusalem. So they are in Persia, and the opening verses tells us that Ahasuerus is in Susa, the citadel of Persia. Now that is not just a capital city, but it is kind of the seat of power, if you will. If you think about the Kremlin, maybe, that's, that's kind of where all the power is concentrated. And that's, that's the idea of the citadel. And he's hosting a banquet, a feast for all his officials and servants. And notice how many times in these opening verses that these titles of royalty and power are expressed. He is, he is, the, he is the king who reigned. And, and, and the, the author of Esther puts, makes a point to tell us this is the king that reigned over 127 provinces. And he was the king. He sat on his royal throne. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for his officials and servants, the army and the nobles. And, and all, of the, all of the important people were there. It is invincible. It was not unlike the great exhibition of 1851 when the British Empire displayed its power and influence for all the world to see. It was a way of saying, look at us. Look at the greatness of our empire, of our kingdom. Be impressed by what we are. The empire of the world is invincible. The empire of the world is also impressive what an impressive feast, one that lasted 180 days. Imagine that, blocking off your calendar for six months to go to this king's feast, to see the splendor of his, this king, his glory, his pomp. Notice the words that scripture gives us, that, that, that we're supposed to be impressed, or at least that's what this king is trying to convey. Remember that the Persian Empire had conquered the Babylonian Empire, which had conquered Israel and many other surrounding nations, and they had taken their wealth. It was a rich empire, and this king wanted everybody to know it, everybody to see his wealth, especially those nobles and rulers who ruled in those faraway provinces away from Susa, the citadel. Also, we see that the empire of the world is desirable. After this extended months-long banquet that he gave for the nobles and princes, he decided to do something nice for the common man. He gave another feast for the folks in the citadel, maybe the civil servants that worked there. And that lasted for seven days. And, and scripture, again, is vivid in its description of all of the things that were there. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of linen and purple, 
and you see their language of, of everything that was very expensive, silver and gold and marble and mosaic pavement, mother of pearl, precious stones, all of these things that are meant to dazzle and impress. The wine flowed and the, and the goblets were all unique. They didn't buy them you know, in bulk from Costco. They, they took them from the treasury, from nations they had captured, likely. And all of the goblets were unique and the wine was flowing. And who wouldn't want to be at this party? You can imagine Entertainment Tonight, Persia Edition, covering all the things that went on there. Some commentators say that, that this king wanted to impress the, the nobles and the governors and kind of win their favor. Scripture doesn't tell us this, but, but historians seem to make a, like to make a link between his, this, the extravagance of this banquet and the fact that he was making plans to invade Greece. And so it's possible that he was trying to impress them and gain their favor in this way. On top of all of this, there was a separate feast for the women hosted by the queen, Queen Vashti. The empire of the world is desirous, desirable. But the empire of the world is also dangerous and exploits others. And, and this is where the story begins to get dark. We've seen the extravagant display of wealth and grandeur. We've seen this months-long celebration, but here we see a king who wants to show off something that he is treating as one of his possessions, and that is his queen. He's had some wine. We, scripture says his heart is merry, which sometimes means that someone is just, just happy, but I think in this case he has probably had one or two too many. And he has these men around him that he's trying to impress and it makes you think of Herod in the New Testament. Um, but here's this man who is likely drunk and trying to impress other men. And so he calls on his eunuchs. He doesn't send one. He sends seven of them to bring the queen to, um, to, to bring her before them for, you know, these men's pleasure, for their drunken, lustful gaze. He wants them to see how grand he is because of his queen's beauty and allure. He's treating her just as an object, another of his objects to display, another one of his playthings, just another possession. And that brings us to our second point, rebellion in the empire. In just four words, we see this party come to a screeching halt because it says, Scripture says, but Queen Vashti refused. Imagine that. This great king in all his pomp and all his showing off of his wealth, someone dares to say no to this man. He's the one who rules 127 provinces. He's the one who throws a party that's six months long. And how dare this woman say no to him? Imagine how awkward that would have been for these seven eunuchs to have to report back to the king and maybe whisper in his ear and say, um, Your Majesty, uh, Queen Vashti said no. And scripture tells us that, that he was enraged, he was angry, and, and as you would expect a man in this position and a man that, that seems to be as, as scripture is, is telling us. Now, many commentators have tried to comment upon her motives or they've tried to bring some moral lesson from her actions, but Scripture is silent in, in both of these directions. 
Some say she was some type of proto-feminist who uh, stood up for women's rights. Some say she was a rebellious woman that wouldn't listen to her husband. But really, Scripture doesn't tell us that. It seems clear that Xerxes or Ahasuerus was not acting nobly, but, but Scripture doesn't speak or comment about Vashti's motives or her, the rightness or wrongness of her actions. The Bible neither extols her bravery for standing up to this self-centered man, neither does it condemn her for obeying or disobeying her husband. Rather, it seems that Vashti's refusal to come at the king's bidding served to mock all the pomp and all the pride that had been shown so far. Here is an empire that appears invincible, yet it's turned on its ear by a woman that refuses to show up when the king calls. I love the way David Strain speaks of this in his commentary. He says, the point, rather, is that suddenly and very publicly indeed, Ahasuerus' power and might and influence and prestige and resources and money are revealed as the empty things that they really are. With one lash of his pen, the author of the book of Esther paints Ahasuerus for a fool. End of quote. And that's exactly what he is. And scripture's pointing that out so vividly and humorously. His power and sovereignty were not what they seemed. And certainly not what he wanted to have portrayed. He was angry. He was mad. He was good and mad. And that brings us to our third point. How the empire struck back. What is to be done about a queen that refuses such a king? We see he's angry and, and we, we have to smile at the mockery that, that scripture, I think, is teaching us and showing us there of, of the vanity of this kingdom. But if we look carefully at the response of the king, I think we'll smile even more to see what he did and what their response was to it. The king consults his advisors, the ones who were experts in the law, to see what should be done. And then Mamukin, evidently the spokesman for the group of seven princes, these seven advisors, he speaks up and he, uh, look with me, if you will, at verse 16. He said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the, all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the king's be, queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media will have heard of the queen's behavior and will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So he is saying, that wasn't just against you, king. That was against everybody. That was against me. That was against all the men in the, in the kingdom, in a sense. What might happen? Well, you know, he's saying this, this, could, this could run amok. So he suggests that a decree be made that, first of all, that Vashti never come before the, the king, which seems like probably the, the response you might expect from such a king, and that her place and position be given to another who is better than she. Notice the, the language there. He seems to be trying to console this enraged king. And they would publish this across the kingdom. Then all the women will give honor to their husbands, or so they thought. 
Additionally, the decree went on that every man should be the master of his own households and speak their own language. In other words, if they had married a foreign wife, they, they were to speak the language of the Persians. They weren't to speak the foreign language that maybe their wife brought into the home. But what's comical about this is, is here the king is trying to save face and, and, and exert his power and influence, but what he's really doing is just publicizing his vanity, publicizing the fact that he's not the powerful king that, that he is trying to portray himself to be. And it's, it's, it's funny, really, when you look at it, and, and really the book of Esther is, is, uses humor and satire against the empire of the world, against the kingdom of the world. And it's a wonderful thing to see. So the, the empire strikes back, but really to their own embarrassment. And I think that, that this is one lesson we need to take from Esther 1, is don't take the world too seriously. Yes, the empire of the world is impressive, sometimes desirable, sometimes tempting, but it is vain and hollow. Ian Dugan, in his commentary, points out that, that there are twin temptations for those who live in the empire of the world, who live in the world, as uh, the Apostle John says in his epistle. And those two dangers are assimilation and despair. Assimilation and despair. There was likely a great temptation among the people of God living in the Persian Empire to just forget about trying to be the people of God. Remember that this was a time when many of the people of God had, had already gone back to their homeland. Esther and Mordecai are among those who remained in Persia. They, they likely felt alone. They, they may have been tempted just to give in and, and be like those around them. And I think it's easy for us to, to think, well, I, I don't want to stand out. You know, I don't want to speak out about... The, the issues that, that I know scripture speaks to, I'm, maybe I should just be quiet about these things. There's a danger to being assimilated into the empire of the world. The other temptation is to fall victim to despair. Where is God in all of this? Why are we here, they probably asked. We've prayed for and continued to pray for godly leaders and look at who we have. How do we remain steadfast in dark times when we cannot understand God's hard providences? How do we remain steadfast when we've prayed for healing or maybe we've prayed for a child or we've prayed for restoration to a broken relationship and it, it seems that the answer is no for now or wait. We, and, and, and we're not hearing what we want to hear from God. Well, in those times you hold on to what you know. You seek to draw close to God. You, you remind yourself of God's promises. You, you lean into him. You don't run away from him. You don't run away from God's people. You, you connect yourself to his church. And, and, and you, you continue to, to seek God. Even when it's dark. Even when there's a dark providence. You keep asking and seeking and knocking. And as you do, you learn more about God. You understand his promises more deeply. And you know his character more intimately. And you remind yourself that God is working. One firm lesson that we can learn from the book of Esther is that God is working even when we can't see him. God 
God's works are not always done in, in grand and glorious ways like he did when he parted the Red Sea for the people of Israel. Sometimes he works through a young queen who musters up her courage to approach the most powerful man in the world to make an appeal for her people. Sometimes he works through a king who can't sleep and calls someone to read a record of all of the events of his kingdom. And he gives favor to his people through unlikely circumstances that many would say are happenstance, but they are ordered by God's sovereign hand. To paraphrase John Piper, right now God is doing about 10,000 things in your life and you're aware of about three of them. That's an encouragement to me because it reminds me that God is working. It reminds me that when things are dark and I can't see what's going on, that, that God hasn't forsaken me, that God is still in control, that he is sovereign. Our songs that we sang tonight focused upon God's sovereignty. And, and we know that God rules and reigns and we can trust him even when we can't see his hand. And when you're faced with living under an empire that is unfriendly to the gospel and faithless and fickle as this king was and even oppressive, realize that God's kingdom is what really matters and that trumps all. So don't take the empire of this world too seriously. Yes, we are here. We're in the world. We, we are called to obey the, the laws of the land and the, and the municipality in which we live for, for God's glory, provided those rules and, and laws do not make us break God's law. But just remember, as John Newton wrote, since, Savior, since of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in your name. Fading are the world's vain pleasures. All their boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. And living in the empire of the world should make us long for another kingdom. And that brings us to our final point, the only lasting empire. And as we think about God's kingdom, we, we got to think about the kind of king we have. We serve a king who is truly sovereign, not one who just sets himself up to be sovereign. We serve a king whose laws must be obeyed, yes, but his laws are good. They're not born of a mind that is capricious and, and self-interested. God's laws are good. They, they are given for our good. We serve a king who does not use people as objects to be thrown away. Rather, we serve a king who has purchased his bride at the cost of his son. The church is the bride of Christ, and our heavenly bridegroom does not subject us to shame and embarrassment, but rather calls us into a loving relationship with him and bestows upon us his mercy and grace. He has provided redemption for us at the cost of his own blood. We serve a king who does all things well, one who is all-wise, all-powerful, one in whom we can trust, not a king who is at the mercy of other advisors. We serve a God who knows all and does, always does what is right and best. Yes, we serve a king who is very much interested in his own glory, but that's right and good because he is the true and righteous king. He is the one who is truly worthy. His glory is not all vanity and pomp and show as Ahasuerus's was. No, he is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, as it says in Revelation. 
because he is the true and righteous, the good king of kings. And the king calls you, he calls you to leave your own ways, to repent of your sins and to trust in him alone for salvation. So how will you respond? Christ is preparing a feast for us. This idea of feasting can be seen throughout scripture and certainly here in the book of Esther. In fact, the, the first and final chapters provide bookends of a feast, of, of separate feasts for different reasons. But this idea of banqueting is a theme that is throughout the Bible. And we see that scripture closes with the marriage supper of the land of the Lamb. I ask you, will you be there? Do not despair at the overwhelming power of the earthly empire. And don't fall victim to its influence, but rather follow the true king, King Jesus. He is the king and the head of his church, and he's calling you today. Will you trust in him completely? Amen. Let us pray.